Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goal. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack, and our guest today is Ron Elisoff, and he founded Northwind Group in 2008 and oversees the all-company investments activities across both the debt and equity strategies. And throughout his career, he's executed over 100 real estate transactions, totaling over $3 billion in value, and spearheaded the formation of Northwind's dedicated closed-end debt funds, currently valued at over $840 million in assets under management. Ron, it's a honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. How are you doing today? Thank you. It's great, aside from the occasional snowstorm in the back. Ron, can you share a little bit more about your background and how you got started with real estate? Sure. So I got into real estate almost by accident. I finished my naval service. I served for six years as a naval officer, took one year off, lived in the Dominican Republic, opened up a surfing school and almost never made it back. But then eventually went back to law school. And uh, during law school, I said to myself, you know, I'm almost 25. I have zero experience. By the time I finish law school, I'm going to be 29. So I might as well work for somebody and at least learn a little bit along the way. So I started working for a a local businessman attorney that did a lot of real estate and he kind of taught me the rope. Fortunately, he passed away kind of unexpectedly and some of his clients asked me to help them out with some deals, which I did. And then one of them introduced me to their family office. I ended up joining that family office, spearheading their real estate activities. I formed Northman in 2008 and then... Northwind managed a real estate fund under that family office. We invested mostly in grocery anchored shopping centers in the southeast of the U.S. and Florida and Texas. After the financial crisis, we bought distressed debt secured by those type of assets. That portfolio grew. I ended up selling my stake in that portfolio in 2011 and shifted focus to New York City. First years in New York City, we did a lot of development, ground up, uh, conversion projects. Then we kind of evolved to more uh, value add, income producing, both multifamily and office buildings. In 2017 was the last year we signed a contract to buy a building in New York. We bought a million square feet office building downtown. We actually sold it about a year ago. And in 2017, after that deal, we kind of shifted towards the debt side and we started lending basically took all the experience and knowledge we gained on the equity side and started implementing it on the debt side. And then that activity grew. We launched our first debt fund. We're now managing three debt funds. And um, it's been you know, a great evolution for us. So when you worked for the attorney starting back in the beginning and he was in real estate, what was it about it that really got you hooked and continued on that path within real estate? You know... I enjoyed the real part of it. It's called real estate. It's very real. You can walk the building, you touch it, it's there. It's You build a building, it stays there for a really long time. And that part really spoke to me. And, and I also felt I understood it. The dynamics, supply, demand, and I just enjoyed it. I, you know, I, I walked the building and I felt alive. And it was very clear to me that that's what I want to do from the first deal I saw. 
And then after you went to work at the family office, how did you decide to come up and found Northwind? So during my years there, we, we started a new business and I told them, listen, we're starting a new business. I'm going to be a partner. So I formed Northwind initially to just hold my GP stake, my stake in the in the general partner of the fund and also the, the, the small investment I made in the fund as a, as a limited partner. So Northwind originally was just my private holding company for my share in that business. And luckily it grew. And, and then when I sold my shares in that business, kind of Northwind had its first startup capital I was able to use to start investing on, on a larger scale. And then was after you sold Northwind, was New York City the first market that you decided to move into? Yes. Just to clarify, I didn't sell Northwind. I sold the holdings Northwind oh. had in, in that fund. And then Northwind was always owned by me. It was very clear to me that we're going to transition. I'm going to transition to New York. I always wanted to do real estate here. And, you know, the first couple of years I was flying back and forth. And then in late 2012, kind of moved here full time. What was it about New York City that was a market that really attracted you to it? Everything. I mean, it's from the first time I was here, it, it was very obvious to me. It's the world financial center. It's the political center, academical center, cultural center. Later became a technological center. So, you know, and it is Manhattan is an island. So, you know, it's pretty good to have scarcity of land. Usually it helps for to conserve real estate value. So I looked at the market dynamics. I looked at, at the job growth and most importantly, the vibe of the city. And, and it's just, okay, this is where I want to do business. But it's a tough, it's a tough market to do transactions in. Yeah. It's very sophisticated, very evolved, very, uh, you know, fast moving market. Especially because when you got into New York City at the same at that time as well, it was still very competitive, and it is still a very competitive market to get into. What did it take to break into that market, especially as a new player? A lot of conviction, and honestly, initially, a little bit overpaying. People ask, "How did you get that deal?" And you can give a lot of sophisticated answers, but the real answer is that at that point in time, we're the one willing to pay the most for it, and that's really. In those days, and still is probably how you get deals in New York. You're the one that at that point in time, willing, you're willing to pay the highest price. And you have to have a sound business plan to make sure that you can sustain the price that you paid. There was very little distress in New York. It was in post the financial crisis, very short-lived. And then the market moved very fast. You know, One of the first deals we'd done here, we bought the land for about $250 a foot. Three years later, that same land traded at $500 a foot. So, you know, when prices move that fast, it's, it's, it's tough. How do you, when you're looking and you're analyzing a property and a potential opportunity to purchase, how do you balance between overpaying at a reasonable value versus overpaying in an outrageous value? Probably the most difficult thing to do. You know, you have to balance your drive to do a deal. Everybody's in real estate in some capacity is a deal junkie, right? You, you want to do deals. That's what you're there for. And you have to balance that with, with your underwriting and making sure that what you think or what you're writing in the Excel is actually doable in real life. And that is the biggest challenge. And I think the ability to say no and pass on deals is something that's definitely harder when you're starting your career and when you're starting to do deals. 
most of the times you, you have to say more yes than no, because if you don't do deals, you're out of business. You don't have a business because you don't have a large portfolio to sustain your platform. So it's probably the biggest challenge when you're starting out. And so the actual management of also is the important part of it too, making sure you're able to execute on your business plan to, like you mentioned, to sustain the value that you purchased the property for. As you're executing the properties, how do you make sure that you're in line and that you're continuing to operate at the optimal efficiency to making sure that you know, you're know you capturing as much value as possible? For us, for me initially, is... He says, okay, we don't know everything. And we try to team up with the right partners that had completing knowledge or capabilities to ours. And that's the way we tackled initial deals. Later on, you realize that sometimes doing deals with partners could also be a negative. You know, there are three things that once you've done them in real estate, you really can't change them. And they're the most important for will the deal will be successful or not. It's how much you paid for the property who you bought it with, meaning who your partner is, and what's the location of the assets. Those three things, it's very hard to change. And if you're wrong on one of them, probably going to be a pretty bad deal. And for us, we were in all the deals we've done in the early stage, we were kind of right on the price and we were right on the location. And most times we were right with the right partners. Unfortunately, we had a couple of deals that the partnership wasn't as good as we thought and we had to exit it. And uh, that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned initially is is try to really, really understand who are the other partners you're bringing into the deal. At what point in a partnership do you recognize that this is no longer going to work anymore? And how do you maneuver it so that it ends up being where one party doesn't feel like they completely lost or it's a more of a win-win type of situation? It never is. It's very tough. Once a partnership goes sideways, it's never easy. We've learned from our mistakes. So we've implemented, you know, future transactions, you know, put options and the ability to kind of trigger and exit. But even that's not simple. And you could end up, you know, a lot of times at odds with a partner. So there's not a simple answer. Uh, on the other hand, we were very lucky to have great partners and great operating partners and investors. So, you know, as long as you make more right decisions than wrong, you're usually in a good place. But it's it's very tough to unwind a partnership in real estate. Is there anything, like you mentioned the options, is there anything else that as you're getting into partnerships and you're trying to solidify and protecting yourself and the company that you've had to implement based off of you know the past experiences that you've learned from some of those partnerships that didn't end up working out? We, we shifted almost completely to being the sole GP and, and stopped doing deals where we're co-GP or, or dependent on another operating partner. But that's it takes time. You need to build the capabilities. You need to build the infrastructure. You need to build the knowledge. So when people are starting out, and I know a lot of the listeners, sometimes they're in the, a little bit earlier stage in their careers, you, you have to partner up. So I would just say, make sure you've vetted really well. Speak with other investors or partners that did deals with them in the past. Usually history tends to repeat itself in, in that aspect and behavior. So you just have to be very diligent on who you're bringing into your deal. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. 
A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. So in 2017, why did you and your company decide to shift over into the debt side of the business instead and shift the focus? So it's a great question. I mean, we've always tried to look at what we call the risk-adjusted return and does it make sense? And for us, around 2017, the answer started to be no on equity investments. We saw the margins kind of narrow and become smaller. And we saw the operational risks regarding equity transactions in New York increase. And we saw the yield as less attractive. On the other hand, we started seeing these loan opportunities that we said, okay, we're going to be in a slightly safer place in the capital stack. We're going to make less than the potential equity. But on again, on the risk-adjusted return, it started to look more and more attractive. So we started to do these one-off loans. And the more we did it, the more it made sense and the more it grew. And, and it kind of was step-by-step. You know, between 2017 to 2019, we've done almost $200 million of loans, and then which was very small compared to our equity portfolio, which at that time was about $2.5 So it was about kind of 10%, right? And then 2020 is when we launched our first debt fund after COVID hit, and that's when it kind of became very scalable. Up until then, we were doing our deals, you know, in SPEs, meaning deal-by-deal structure, never in a fund, and then... When we raised our first fund and we started deploying in more structured, institutional manner, it, it became very scalable. And now we actually manage almost $1.2 in our debt strategy. What was it about when we got into the COVID environment that allowed you to scale or grow a little bit bigger? I mean, a lot of reasons. But the main one is that, you know, the market kind of opened up. A lot of people were on the sidelines, a lot of banks, and there were transactions we were able to do with what we felt were good returns. And there were a little bit of less competition. New York is a highly competitive market, but it was slightly slightly more open. And we were able to raise a fund. We raised the fund July 2020. So we're able to start deploying, you know, five months into COVID. We're already in business lending. So I think that helped us a lot. What is a, if you can share a typical structure of one of your debt funds? So a typical deal, about half our business is a condo inventory loan. So we would come into a project that is nearly completed or has been completed, but for various reasons, not all the units have sold and maybe there's the existing lender, you know, is fatigued and, 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 and wants out. So we would come in, we would write a new mortgage, first mortgage. We would replace the existing construction lender, completely take them out. We would become the, the senior lender. Uh, and as the, Units are sold. Our loan is being paid off gradually until we've taken out and then the developer can enjoy all the profits. A typical deal gets done, you know, when we started, it was done at LIBOR plus between 5 to 8% spread and LIBOR was virtually zero. Later, you know, the market kind of transitioned to a sulfur-based, sulfur kind of replaced LIBOR and the spreads increased a bit to around 6 plus 8, but Sulfur went from zero to four and a half, four point seven. So the interest rate environment, as you were aware, never do is, is much more expensive these days, right? And so the loans were basically high single digit, and they're now 
in the low double digit realm. And how is that? How is today's current environment with the interest rates and everything like that in in the markets? Has that impacted your business and how you strategize with the types of loans that you're putting together and the different structures that you offer? So obviously, the ability to cover the loan is very important. So we, in all our loans, we structure them with an adequate interest reserve. So we looked at the loan duration and we make sure we reserve up front enough, enough funds to be able to cover the, 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 the regular interest payments. And I would say that actually what we've seen in the last year is a lot of commercial banks scaled back their lending and it actually opened the field. So we've been doing larger loans, uh, to larger sponsors and, and, and equity owners. Uh, a lot of loans that typically would have been done or provided by, by banks are now being provided from by, uh, you know, by debt funds like ours. And how do you protect yourself and the company in case? you know, things were to turn or we go into a recession period. How do you, what what types of risk mitigation things do you put into place? Listen, you can never fully protect and, and the market is always, always surprises you with something you can't expect. So it's all about being at the right basis, meaning being at a low enough LTV loan to value, being lending on properties in good locations and probably the most important things, the thing to good sponsors. If you're, able to navigate and able to lend to low LTVs, good sponsors, good properties, that's 80% of the job, right? Of protecting your investment. And the other 20% is actively managing the loan portfolio, being hands-on, asking the right questions, trying to identify red flags enough in advance so you can actually do something about it and not be surprised when something bad happens. And you know, it's in real estate always something happens. It's it's never always as planned. And uh, and you need to actively manage your portfolio. So Ron, what's next for you and what's the next focus? So I think this year we're going to probably have our busiest year lending in a significant capacity. I mean, all recent events that just happened with with banks failing, I think that's just going to increase the, what I was saying before, that banks are going to scale back and you'll see more loans get done by private lenders and private debt funds. We're increasing our exposure in the healthcare space. We have a dedicated fund that's lending exclusively on portfolios of senior housing and skilled nursing. And I think we're going to do a lot of business in that sector as well. We really like the senior housing space, you know, uh, with the demographic trends in the U.S. And we're great believers in it. And it's also going to be a very opportunistic. I think there's going to have, there are going to be interesting opportunities this year across multiple asset classes. And you just, you know, you need to keep your eyes open. There's, I think right now we've seen the last six months kind of a diminished activity the transaction volume on the equity side have definitely decreased. And I think that's probably going to change towards the end of the year when a lot more deal flow is going to, going to occur. And how has real estate investing impacted your life, Ron? I mean, it's everything for me. I mean, if you see my initials, they're RE, right? Real estate. <laughs> I was born to do this. <laughs> and if there was one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started, what would that be? How volatile it is. I mean, you invest in real estate and initially you have a sense that it's a very stable, steady, heady kind of industry. And it's not, I mean, we live in a world that things are moving so fast and property values and market dynamics and regulation that keeps up. So, so I think it's much more dynamic and volatile than people maybe looking from the outside in may perceive. 
I have to follow up with this question also with the volatility that you just mentioned. What is the best practice for you and your company to be able to manage and keep track and keep a pulse on everything that's moving because everything's changing so quickly one day to the other? We ask, and I ask my team, and we ask ourselves always the same question Does it make sense? And the answer changes every day and every month. And you can see in our evolution that we've evolved when. The answer was no. So we stopped doing you know, heavy development deals in 2014 when it stopped making sense to us. And we stopped buying properties in 2017 in New York, again, when it stopped making sense and we started lending. And now we're lending and we think lending makes a lot of sense and it's tougher to make sense on equity. And that's probably going to change as well. And then we're going to do another evolution. It's always about, you can't be stagnant. I think Maybe 30 years ago, when there was less technological advance, you could do the same thing for 10, 15 years and build. And I think we're living in a world where because of technology, because of the fast-paced environment, things change fast. So you have to keep evolving. And what you did last year doesn't make necessarily mean it makes sense this year. And what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? I don't know. But I think in any aspect of professional, it's... It's about hard work. There's no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. You have to work hard every day and be persistent and nothing comes easy. It always looks easy from the outside. Oh, how did they do it? Oh, they built a billion dollar company. It never is. <laughs> every day is a struggle. Every day you're dealing with something new and it's about being there and working very hard and working through it. And you're going to get hit. You're going to get some punches and you need to you know, get yourself up and keep moving. And Ron, where can our listeners find out more about what you're doing? I mean, they can follow me on LinkedIn. We're pretty active there and they can see uh, what we're doing and can follow our company. We're pretty active with our outreach on what we do. And anybody can reach out with an email and I'm always happy to meet new people. And, you know, there's always something to learn from anybody. Awesome. Ron, thank you so much for all your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation and uh, I'll be happy to speak again. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.